0: welcome to the why on earth community podcast i'm your host aaron william perry and today we're visiting with a very special guest the author of the renaissance campaign john rogers hey john how you doing
1: aaron i'm great i'm delighted to be here and uh, anything I can do to be part of your world and help you, I'm interested in doing. So it's a pleasure to be here.
0: Well, it's uh, that's really appreciated, of course, and I'm so excited to have this opportunity to speak with you about your body of work, your book in particular, the arc of your career, and the way in which you've woven together so many different threads.
1: Yeah, well, it's, it's certainly not been a, a traditional career, uh, but um, a, um, I'm delighted to um, participate. And, and it's always uh, fun to look back and
0: inspiring to look forward. Cool. John Rogers is a national security and systemic risk expert focused on change and disruption in the arenas of climate, technology, geopolitics, and culture. John established RL Leaders, a consulting enterprise serving the US government that has served at the nexus of the national security community and Hollywood in the entertainment community for over two decades. John held the position of RL Leaders CEO until he transitioned to a board position in 2022 after selling the company to his partners. He serves on several boards of directors and advisory boards, including Lucille Global, we'll talk about that, National Security Leaders for America, Hub Security, Neuroanimations, and Wisdom. John has worked in both the private and public sectors, including as CEO of MV Transportation and at the Pentagon as Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Legislative Affairs. He has led national and international scale campaigns, including with Michael J. Fox's major legislative efforts for Parkinson's disease treatment. John gave a keynote talk at the Bretton Woods 75th anniversary conference titled The Power of Perspective and he resides in Wisconsin where he has been instrumental in several state-level initiatives and campaigns and can be found in creative pursuits such as photography, writing, and occasionally painting when he's not working through diverse networks on some of humanity's most pressing challenges. And John, just before we started recording you showed me a few of your your paintings and they're absolutely beautiful and they're tremendous and maybe it's cliche maybe it's a stereotype but it seems often somebody with your background and professional experience uh the arts the pursuit of art the pursuit of creative expression may not be as uh well developed or uh, significant a, a factor in one's life and i guess as a place to start, picking up on that thread and the title of your book, The Renaissance Campaign. Why Renaissance and what why why does somebody like you also make art? Um well,
1: I'll answer the second part of your question first. Why somebody like me makes art and um and i really say two things uh one uh it's therapeutic uh and, and people uh, everybody needs a different form of therapy uh that was one of mine um uh, the second um is balance um i think that it's easy uh, for um for people who are driven hard, um, to sometimes get blinders on um, as they are driving to whatever they're driving towards, and we hear about this, you know, frequently, even in the context of athletes. But I, I think the same is true of CEOs and elected officials, you know, the presidents, whatever. I mean, part of that is that it it really takes constant vigilance um, in order to achieve some of those results, and and I think it's it's easy for people then to lose balance. Um, the The Renaissance, uh, the reason why Renaissance, or to me, was um, inspired um, by Florence, but uh, you know, in Florence and by the Medici family, but. It really is all about diversity of thought, um, and and again, in my mind, um, that's also related to balance. Um, you need to get different perspectives uh, around different problem sets to balance your own thinking around that, and so um, so I you know and balance is a big part of it. Um, you know, not only for me personally. Uh, but I think that I think it's important. Uh, it's important societally as well.
0: Boy, yeah, and, and you've taken such a deep dive into this into this notion of balance and diversity of thought. And you know, I'm really curious. You you had a, a position with considerable responsibility at the Pentagon, r- relatively early in your career, as I understand it would you say that at that time you were already tuned into and and even perhaps leading the way around this need for balance and diversity of thought uh a i was a pup uh b no i had no balance whatsoever
1: i was all in uh and and i um uh and, yeah I, there there was no balance at all uh these were very very long days and and i um uh worked really hard uh, to get there and it's one of those experiences like a lot of people who work in administrations and uh whether they work in the white house or the pentagon or wherever I, you know I, I i have so many of my friends and colleagues who uh, would say hardest job ever uh, wouldn't change it for a second um it it, it was interesting fast forward uh, many uh, years after that in my life. And I was the, um, um, as you know, Aaron, I was the interim CEO of MV Transportation. MV Transportation is the nation's largest uh, privately held transportation company busing uh, paratransit school buses. Um, and, and I'll tell you that, uh, you know, I it opened my eyes and gave me a different perspective on um, what it's like to be a CEO of a really big company Uh, because it's very, very hard um, to maintain balance when you're uh, running a billion-dollar-plus entity. And so, you you know, fortunately for me, uh, when I was in that role, I had a lot more tools at my disposal um, to be able to uh, at least think about it, Uh, but it, um, uh, it was a great reminder. (laughs) <laughs> Excuse
0: me. Yeah, it's so interesting, and I'm I'm really curious your thoughts on, you know, given the kind of work you you're doing, and especially that you're doing now, uh, working on a variety of global systemic risks, you know, ranging from climate to technology, et, et cetera. Um, you have the opportunity to interact and interface with all kinds of leaders. And, and I'm, I'm curious, and I, I, I'm, I guess I'm asking this question also with kind of an implicit, you know, backdrop of some shared experience you and I have being connected to the Lucille Foundation and the Lucille community. I'm curious if you would comment on leaders generally who are, you know, shouldering the massive and relentless responsibilities that they have. Uh, And where we're at, you know, in terms of state of the world relative to leaders having balance and and, or needing balance and or how might more balance among our leaders worldwide create a a better and improved situation for the planet and for all of humanity?
1: Yeah, I was at a um, a conference a few months ago, the Concordia Summit. uh, And... um... Tony Blair was one of the keynotes, one of the guys, one of the speakers, and he made this really interesting comment. He, he said something to the effect of, um, I, "I wish I, I wish I knew um, then what I know now." <clears throat> Excuse me again, Aaron. In that, um, um, you know, after he left office, he learned so much, mm-hmm. and as a result of that learning, he would have been better. Uh, in office had he known that. And I think that <clears throat> I think that um, 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 that's the case pretty widely. Um, I think that that's a, um, um, I think that a lot of leaders are very much out of balance. And, and then because they don't have the training. Uh, have they had the training like you get at Lucille, like you can get in other places? Uh, I think that um I think they'd be better leaders so
0: yeah well I I'm so excited to uh dive into your book a little bit the Renaissance campaign but um before doing so I I can't resist uh especially having been on a call earlier today with our friends Sophie and Olivier the founders of Lucille um could you John uh, tell us just a little bit about the Lucille Foundation, which is obviously, or maybe it's not so obvious, uh, what brought you and I together. That's how we met and connected. Um, there's something, from my perspective, very special going on with Lucille, and I was hoping we might hear from you in your words what uh, what that is.
1: Yeah, so as you know, Aaron, and as your listeners may not know, the Lucille Foundation is a UK based charity that's a mission in life that is to bring together the best of primordial wisdom, um, and and as well as modern day practices and science um, to work on some of the world's uh, biggest, hardest challenges, um, whether they be uh, related to the earth, whether they be related to humanity, uh, and to really bring that wisdom forward um, uh, along with, uh, uh, um, again, the best common sense approaches. Um, I, I don't know about you, Aaron, but for me, Lucille was a life changer. Um, and I think that, and I actually don't know of anybody uh, who's engaged, who's participated with Lucille, you know, who hasn't walked out the door, uh, a different person than when they walked in that door. Um, because it, it, again, you know, what Lucille does as much as anything else, is gives its participants a a, a, a bigger toolbox uh, by which to approach things, in that it really um, starts with an understanding of self. Uh, and and you, you, with the notion that you really can't change the world, Um, unless you understand yourself. Uh, You know, I remember one of the the things I heard along the way, which is that inner peace uh, creates world peace. And while I don't know if that's entirely true, uh, I do believe that um, you can't get to world peace, but without inner peace. And so um, Lucille is uh, an organization that, that I I think again like you, am extraordinarily grateful for uh, and grateful to.
0: How would you I describe t- it? I totally agree with that, John. And, and I was just reflecting over the last couple of days that you know I've been uh, blessed and privileged to have had a number of wonderful mentors and friends along the way, and as as. an aspiring leader, uh, I have taken a lot of wisdom and learnings from many of those friends and mentors, many of whom uh, are now in their 80s and 90s. And I'll say that for me personally, uh, becoming an effective leader, becoming a compassionate and heart centered leader has been uh an objective a conscious g- goal or directionality for me and this past year immersed in the lucio foundations holistic visions training process has uh helped that to evolve to a whole nother level it, that in a way i wasn't even aware sort of how how far i could come through uh until going through this process with lucio it's tremendous i recommend it to folks worldwide who would like to up level their abilities as leaders.
1: Yeah I, I um, <clears throat> me too <laughs> um, I, with, without hesitation. I mean I think it's um, <clears throat> I think it's extro- an extraordinary gift. Part of it for me um, lies in the fact that I you know I've spent um, the vast majority of my life in my head. Uh, in that, um, um, you know, I'm very much a coming. I come from a place of cognitive decision making. Um, the the whole concept of the mixed tables and the Renaissance campaign and and all of that really is to bring together uh, people otherwise wouldn't who don't normally talk with each other uh, to talk with each other to to try and solve really hard problems um, and. Um, and it, it, it again, that, that's a really a cognitive uh, activity. And it was in 2019 that both um, participated in the Bretton Woods um, 75th anniversary um, summit, which was an extraordinary event. And then from there, uh, learning about to uh, being invited uh, to Lucille, that my perspective changed. And it changed from the vantage point of, of my term, nobody else's, uh, but the but the uh, uh, metaphorically a, a medicine wheel, and that it wasn't just about the mind; it was about the mind and the heart and the spirit and the body creating the energy, and 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 that um, that relensing um, has uh, been extraordinary for me.
0: Yeah, likewise likewise well, one of the many threads in your book john that that I really uh, appreciated and and found to really resonate uh, for me is the thread of holistic thinking and I want to just take a quick moment and, and flash on screen here the book. The renaissance campaign the what, subtitle... do you, what do you mean Aaron? i i don't know what you mean i mean uh, what really heavy you... <laughs> absolutely um the subtitle is a problem solving formula for your biggest challenges and we'll include the link to amazon where folks can get a copy themselves i highly recommend this book this book i read uh, slowly and carefully and painstakingly underlined and annotated over the last several weeks john and it's, a, it's, it's a, a, a lovely, approachable read. And it is so packed with pithy wisdom and with a, a way of turning the insights into uh, very digestible ahas. That's my experience of reading the book. And there's so many important threads. You, you mentioned mixed tables, the word Renaissance plays out in the book in, a, in an interesting way, and uh, holistic, thinking. And so I'm really curious, because I think, you know, many of us are familiar with this term holistic and might use this term holistic, and perhaps it means, you know, slightly different things for different people and audiences. What does it mean for you? What does holistic imply, especially in the context of the kind of work you're doing? Comprehensive.
1: I mean, it's not, um, um, I do not look in the, at this term, I do not think about this term in a woo-woo manner. Uh, I think about this term in a really practical manner. Um, um, I think about this term as a 360-degree comprehensive, um, uh, three-dimensional, four-dimensional way to approach um, uh, approach things. And um, so... Holistic to me is is it means comprehensive, and um, because all too often I think that we approach these things um, from uh, from our own prisons, um, I, I, you know, and the and the prisons are rigidity of thought, and the prison is the the lack of uh, empathetic perspective. A lack of understanding the perspective of others, and the unwillingness to, and and so I, um, so I think that if we're going to solve some of these sets of issues, um, we've really got to look at them through a diverse thought. Uh, that is not to say that um, that that there are not facts in in the world, um, and and I think that we as a society. Uh, more and more frequently um, are, are subject to uh, different uh, the lack of differentiation between an opinion and a fact. Um, but, but be that as it may, the more we can um, bring together people from different uh, verticals, if you will, uh, to help us think about problem sets, uh, the better off we're going to be. We're trained to be uh, specialists. And and I'm a generalist, um, and and I'm a connector. Um, I, you know, I I I try to surround myself uh, with really smart people who have really great expertise, but then help them think more broadly as a result of connecting them to others.
0: Yeah, well, you you strike me as doing this in such a. a a potent and pragmatic way. And I, I want to actually circle back on this term woo woo. But before doing so, I want to I want to go in a different direction and ask you about some of the work you did following 911 with mixed tables, specifically in the defense intelligence community and the creative community, because I think it will for our audience. Uh, uh bring bring to ground exactly what you're talking about in a very specific circumstance and context
1: well um after 9/11 i, I um, um i was working with an, an entity called the institute for, the cre- for creative technologies which is part of the university of southern california and um, um, and the institute for creative technologies purpose is to bring together um, um, and connect uh, Hollywood researchers um, slash Hollywood uh, with the army and the national security community. And we were asked at the time, um, soon after 9-11, um, the, the, the guy who was running the, the ICT at the time who's since deceased and it was a dear, dear friend who later became my partner. Uh, Dick Lindheim um, to uh, bring together Hollywood writers producers and directors uh, to think about terrorism um, and, um, and and right around this time the sequencing a little off on this but uh, it's it's important to note that one of the findings in the 9/11 commission report uh, as it related to uh, what occurred was a lack of imagination. Um, by the intelligence community and by the national security community uh, to think about terrorism. After all, who would have thought about um, a bunch of crazy people flying airplanes into buildings? Um, Well, um, Hollywood did. (laughs) And the creatives did. And so we were asked to um, bring together those creatives and and um, we produced a report and I brought that report to Washington and and to the uh, to the Pentagon and uh, um, Congress and other places and and from that a program was established that really looked at and utilized the creativity of Hollywood to help think more broadly about these things, to help imagine what the future could be. Um, uh, and so there was, um, um, uh, it played a, a, a discreet and, uh, and yet really important role in helping, uh, envision, uh, what, uh, what, uh, what could be, uh, from what bad guys are capable of to, uh, what great things we can do. And so, um, uh, all of the above.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um tremendous and, and so interesting to learn about that uh in some of our recent conversations. Now I, I gotta ask this woo-woo thing because I'm I'm really curious. I about, did that on purpose. Um yeah you know so when we're approaching uh our uh problem sets, our challenges from a holistic perspective and when we're looking at uh indigenous wisdom traditions and some of the uh, quote-unquote quote maybe non-typical from a mainstream policy and business standpoint, uh, uh, sources of, of insight and, and knowledge, etc. Um, it seems that we find ourselves often in the arena of what we would call spirituality. And I think that for many of us, uh, we have a spiritual aspect to our human experience and for many of us we talk about and language and describe or don't talk about and don't language and don't describe that in a vast variety of ways and i'm wondering for somebody like you who collaborates and works in very serious arenas and disciplines how do you approach things like spirituality without Coming across as woo-woo without, you know, without without eroding credibility.
1: Yeah, I think that um, um, it's a great question, Aaron. Um, for me, uh, I approach it internally. In that, uh, clearly, I uh, you know have a you know, what I consider a deep spiritual side of me, um, but I also uh, recognize that. Uh, I recognize that we live in the world in which we live, um, and and even though uh, there's a world it, to which we want to be, in which we want to be, we live in the world that we live in. We still have Putin, uh, we still have Hamas, we still have Gaza. Uh, we have, you know, we have a a bunch of really very, very difficult uh, dynamics that exist worldwide. <clears throat> and 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 the national security side of my brain, it, we still have to deal with all that. and we have to deal with it um, rationally. <laughs> excuse me. um so um, so the the best way I can approach it is, again is is something I said to you earlier, is is they are, um, by being really grounded in self and and to have the tools in which uh, you and I have both gotten from Lucille and others uh, to to navigate these complex issues. Uh, hopefully I approach them um, in a way that informs others to, um, um, to be more open uh, to different perspectives. Um, at the same time, really practical on what needs to happen.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, I love in the book, the way you frame up some of the tools and opportunities that we can incorporate and utilize in our own activities in different ways. And with the mixed table um, concept, there, there's so much in the book that really gets right down to planning a, a two or three day event and uh keeping uh food and the sharing of food in in community uh, as one of the central uh approaches to having a successful mixed table so I'm, I'm I'm really excited to hear you describe for us you know what's a mixed table um how do you put them together and, and maybe I'd ask you to, share a little more with us about a couple that, uh, one or two that have really stuck out to you over the years.
1: Yeah. So, um, um, I'll back it up just a little bit. I first learned, um, about a mixed tab- about mixed tables from my old boss, Les Aspen, uh, who was a chairman of the House Armed Services Committee and then secretary of defense. Uh, and he was my mentor. Uh, you know, for, I worked for him for a good while early in my career, and and he would um, he would go around the country. This is at the end of the Cold War, um, and assemble these mixed tables of people who otherwise wouldn't normally talk with each other. So he'd have maybe an academic or two, and and then he'd have um, a retired you know general or you know high level officer and then he, maybe he'd have a a political guy and then maybe he'd have somebody from you know uh, uh, industry uh and, and you know um, and men or women when I say guy I don't mean to you know people um and 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 through that process and I'm I'm a kid you know I'm standing you know, I'm sitting by the side of his shoes polishing them or something uh and and through that process um aspen was then able to put forth a variety of of really interesting theories aspen was uh, really smart and, and a terrible boss i mean yeah you know, just i mean you know he the the kind of boss that just you know i i woke up one day had legionnaire's disease and was told, well, you don't want a job? You know, you don't need to show up. It's okay. It's up to you." Uh, one hundred and four fever, and you know, you show up. Uh, uh, all the good old days. Uh, and um, um, but he was brilliant. And and one of the one of the um, postulates that he had way back when was that without the Cold War, which he very much wanted to go away. He said that it was really unclear what uh, U.S. foreign policy would be, and more importantly, what U.S. domestic policy would be, uh, because it would um, because the Cold War uh, was a unifying force among Democrats and Republicans. And sure enough, uh, uh, there's a uh, uh, there's a great book, uh, "The Rise and Fall of the Neoliberal Order," uh, by a brilliant historian and economist that that takes what I just said and it really articulates why we ended up where we ended up with, which is completely fragmented um and and but it it was an aha moment for me um fast forward to um 9 11 and the the question that you asked about the book and all of that what I saw when we um, brought in Hollywood, when we brought in creatives was also an aha moment uh, above and beyond what Aspen had taught me. Because by introducing uh, a creative or creatives, real creatives into the equation, you change the whole thing. Um, And you change it because everybody, at the end of the day, whether they realize it or not, going into the mix table, becomes more creative. Uh, at you know, one point in time, you know I my one of my partners and I came up with the term that you know the the Hollywood and it's not just Hollywood, it could be New York, it could be the you know Boulder, it could be wherever. They, you know, creatives are paid Imagineers used to working under a time budget. Paid Imagineers used to work under a time budget, and so they they have the ability to to blue sky and to uh, really think creatively in a in a in really practical in a really practical way, because if you're producing a a, a movie or a television show, you're on deadline. And so you have to be creative. You got to pound out a new idea, you know, from a blank piece of paper, a blank storyboard, uh, really quickly. When we, when we mixed that group with subject matter experts and thought leaders, we recognized that um, something was happening over and over and over again, and that was that at the end of every one of these. Um, mixed tables, these summits, these you know, these mini conferences, these really interesting ideas would occur and emerge that hadn't before, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and and it it just happened over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. Uh, and whether uh, it was um, something uh, like you know, how do you help the brain aneurysm foundation? Uh, you know, reimagine how they engage with the world or uh, what would a uh, what would the 5G network do to terrorism and what's that going to look like in the future? And uh, you know, over and over we would we would see these this pattern
2: um,
1: And I I realized we were on to something um, and and the the book um, wasn't uh, isn't intended to sell books. Uh, the book is intended to help people solve problems. And so what I did in the book was I gave away uh, the, the the recipe. I gave away the pre- precise formula for how to go about doing a mixed table. Uh, so that if you want to do one, Aaron, go ahead and do them. Uh, and if people want to do them, they can do them themselves. And so that was the idea behind, uh, behind uh, how I approached that in the book. So, with that in mind, the, the the recipe was: we recognized that if we could take Hollywood creatives and/or creatives more broadly, subject matter experts and thought leaders, we could really get to some um, to some unique insights into problem sets. And as far as the book, uh, you know, I, I I was really very. Um, uh, descriptive and how you do this because I wanted to give it away uh you know this was the the you know I, I wanted to give away those insights so that if people wanted to do it and wanted to approach uh, problem solving in a different way than they had heretofore um, that I was giving them the uh, a recipe it's a cookbook uh it just has a not not doesn't have a cookbook name on it
0: absolutely love it. Yeah, and I really, I mean, it is, it literally lists out sequentially, the step by step of putting these together and bringing these together. And uh, I, I encourage folks to get a copy of the book and incorporate this into your uh, leadership and, and problem solving toolkit. Um, and I, I'm curious, I got to ask, because as I was reading, I was wondering to myself, what would john say about this, and it is The distinction between the creative the subject matter expert and the thought leader because you really you point out the importance of having all three together at the table so to speak what's the difference and how does one know when one's a subject matter expert or one's a thought leader one's a creative
1: yeah it it, let's be clear it's an arbitrary designation Mm -hmm. and uh, uh, but that being said, uh, here's some guides. Uh, uh, because, it, uh, <laughs> let me put the asterisk out there first. The asterisk is that everybody's creative. Uh-huh, yeah. Everybody has the ability to be creative. They just don't necessarily recognize that at times. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people, if you ask them if they're creative, she might say, no, I'm not, you know, it's not what I do doesn't mean that um, that uh, she or or they are not it means that that's how they perceive themselves um this process what I've seen is over and over and over again it gets people to behave creatively I'll give you another um, hack I hate that term sorry in a, in a moment for it um but the um a creative to me is somebody who's um who who literally is paid to imagine under a time budget. Yep. Um, so that's that's the creative. Uh, a subject matter expert is um, somebody who has domain expertise on the question that you're wrestling with. So if you're uh, what what group were you in, uh, in Lucille this last time? Uh, team Five, the financial systems group. So you need people with real financial expertise in order to have an intelligent discussion around there, whether they're in fintech or banking or law or whatever. They've got to have you need real expertise in the in the world um, of, of of financial services. Thought leaders in this context are other people who have accomplished really great things, big and small, who are not in the financial services world. Mm-hmm. So you know they they could be your neighbor uh, who's just done an extraordinary job of, of coalescing your neighborhood, mm-hmm. uh, but um, but they are a thought leader in in something. Uh, they're not um, uh, they the, you know it, it, it's not about title; it's about accomplishing something and moving different thoughts forward. Could be about title. It could be that it ha- they also happen to have a title, mm-hmm. uh, but it's certainly not a necessary condition, and so that's how I would um, that's how I would you know characterize all three groups. the 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 other way you can uh, that I find um, really helpful in um, in going about this to get the the best results it, it isn't where um, it started with Aspen, you know, where we'd sit down and we'd have a conversation about uh, what does the world look like in the post-Soviet era. Uh, it, it, but it was about um what it is about is to is to create an environment where you can immerse people in a role. In other words, have them leave their role behind. So it may be related to financial. Uh, services but uh, in this instance um, you're a bank and at your bank you know everybody's playing the bank or, or you're a uh, a non-profit who uh, is uh, you know is uh, creating a new cryptocurrency, whatever it is, right you know you you put them in a put them in a place that is not their day-to-day role because they have ego tied to their day-to-day role. Mm-hmm. And, and you want to get away from ego in order to get the best of themselves uh, at this table. You want to get away from uh, the attachments that they bring into it. You want you want to get tap into all of their knowledge and expertise and brilliance, but you want to take the things that they get in the way of themselves. You know, I'm fond of saying that You know, people, you know, one of the biggest challenges is that people get in the way of themselves. Uh, And so you want to take, you want to help get out of the way of themselves.
0: And the way to do that is through immersion. Beautiful. I'm curious, when you convene mixed tables, do you tend to reconvene mixed tables after some period of time? Is it usually a one and done or, or is it something that has some periodicity to it?
1: Yeah, we've done both. Um, I love the, um, I, I love them both, uh, mm-hmm. you know the, um, the the one and done mix table. Uh, you know, somebody once said, "Never before and never again will such a brilliant group of people be brought together to work on this problem." and, and it, there's there's magic in them their words um, on the other hand you know some of our finest work has been what we termed a longitudinal panel you know we'd meet every um uh, every quarter uh, for uh, a year or two um just like a board of directors but we would we would uh, meet and work through Uh, this was on messaging, uh, overseas and we would work and meet through how, um, uh, that, you know, just a long, deep, continued set of problems and challenges. So it, it, it allowed the group to really, um, be cohesive, um, and really allowed for some deeper work. Very interesting.
0: You know one of the things that comes to mind for me thinking on the mixed tables and how you present this is that it's it's really a methodology one could say for uh bringing out the genius of the group as opposed to the genius of the individuals so to speak and uh by the way i love uh somewhere in the book it's quoted i don't have the page number right here it says polymaths need mixed tables too and you know the the way you describe this as a renaissance function and the way you talk about what was going on in in renaissance italy specifically with some of these you know real geniuses like da vinci and michelangelo and so on Uh, and of course there's genius in the family of the medicis who helped to underwrite and, and support and facilitate and foster so much uh to occur and i guess i'm i'm curious to ask you what do you think about genius as, as a, as a concept? And what do you think about genius of group of a group, of the group of groups as, as something, you know, markedly and qualitatively different from genius, we might think of like in terms of an individual.
1: Well, I, I love, uh, I love your description of it. And uh, I love the idea of bringing out the genius of the group. I'm going to borrow it from this point in time forward. Thank you. Yeah, I think that um, um, Bruce might comment on Polymos and uh, uh, and um, and our friend Aaron Bruce Mao in his book, which is a wonderful book uh, on um, on on design. Uh, he talks about the fact that there are no more Renaissance people uh, because uh, because the issues are are too complex. No one person is going to solve this. They're renaissance teams. Uh, And um, this is, you know, I didn't know Bruce when I wrote the book. I hadn't had the, I probably would have uh, written the book differently um, had I written it today um, because of the work that you and I have done with Lucille and others. Um, But I I think that um, his words are accurate here and uh, what you're really trying to do is create a renaissance team and really trying to bring the brilliance and the genius of each of those individuals out uh, to solve uh, really complex problems. I mean, I think that, um, uh, and I, and, oh, by the way, in order to solve the really complex problems, uh, that in and of itself won't be sufficient. Um, but it will be a, a really good start. Um, so, um, and I think there's a, a lot of different ways we can do this. I'm talking with Lucille and Bruce and others about um, uh, about the following concept, uh, namely, together, namely to bring together um, policymakers, change makers, and wisdom keepers. Um, around these and and probably creatives around these really big um, hard ideas. Uh, again, back to con- uh, uh, Concordia Summon, and again back to Tony Blair. Uh, you know, he, he had another really interesting thing to say, which is that change makers and um, and policy makers live in vastly different worlds and they don't talk to each other. So somehow we've got to start to think about how to bring them together um, in a way that is, um, that is uh, both aspirational uh, and functional, um, and doesn't just result in another conference that's really well-named and really well-funded that, at the end of the day doesn't get anything done there's just a lot of arguing that we're hearing about
0: underneath the hood Mm -hmm. very interesting you know something you mentioned to me the other day when we were chatting about the the world needs the best from each of us in in order to create the best uh possible future i'm paraphrasing and summarizing hopefully I'm, i'm getting it reasonably correct i'm wondering you know in in your uh arc of career, you've had the opportunity and continue to collaborate with folks who are prominent on the world stage, uh, who are recognized as leaders in their respective domains. I'm wondering, what do you think about the way we can, as a society, uh, do more to, to translate, to carry, to connect, to collaborate From and between the folks who have that level of call it maybe elite status and, you know, sort of the rest of us who are doing often important work at community scale, at local scale, at regional scale, but don't, you know, have the notoriety that they would be, you know, necessarily invited to be a keynote at a big conference or something to that effect. Is there, from your perspective, is there more we can do to activate? what might be possible uh with that being somehow more energized um yes
1: um that first of all Aaron, that is a a really big hard question that uh would be perfect for a mixed table huh cool um uh, it, it, because it's a, it's a, because of the scale of you know of eight billion people, yeah. um, and you know my existence is very very, and your existence is very different than um, somebody in Siberia or somebody in Ghana or somebody in you know the Amazon or wherever or somebody in China and the Himalayas, name it um and yeah. and so, um, part of the challenge with that um question is to make sure that the answer is a global answer, not a western answer mm-hmm. uh, or not just a western answer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and part of that I think I'm scratching at through what I described, uh, namely, to. Um, uh, Bring identify the different verticals of society and bring them all together <laughs> in a way that we haven't in a that to my knowledge uh, hasn't been done before. Um, but the the ongoing nature of it um, is is I think perhaps the most challenging um, because the the change that occurs and. You know your little town, uh, and or um, the city down the road from here. You know they're they're occurring organically, and it's and 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 there's a lot of great things that are happening in the world. Period. I mean, yeah. you know, we we tend to focus on the negative hmm. because the negative is newsworthy, and we tend to miss the positive. Because it evolves over time. And and thus it's not newsworthy. And that doesn't mean that there's not bad shit out there. Yeah. Nor does it mean that there's not greatness out there. Mm-hmm. It means you have to keep both thoughts in your head comfortably at the same time. Yeah. And and that's never gonna change in our lifetime um that's we're just that that, it, that is what it is and so um i i really
0: i really believe that that's so potent john and uh makes me think about capacity and and cognitive dissonance and maybe i'll Come back to that. Let me just take a quick moment and remind our audience. This is the Why on Earth Community Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron William Perry. And today we're visiting with John Rogers, the author of The Renaissance Campaign, uh, an extraordinary book. I highly recommend it. And I want to be sure to take a moment to thank some of our partners and sponsors who make this podcast series possible, including our friends at the Luciel Foundation uh, just want to give a great shout out to Lucille and encourage folks to check them out and consider uh, joining uh, the Holistic Visions training offering from Lucille. Um, want to give a huge shout out to our many ambassadors in the Why on Earth Community Network, several of whom uh, contribute on a monthly basis uh, to help support our work, including the podcast series. Uh, If you'd like to contribute and haven't signed up yet, you can go to whyonearth.org, click on the donate page, set it up at any level you want. If you're in the United States and you want to give it the $33 level, we'll send you as a thank you, a jar of the Waylay Waters hemp infused aromatherapy soaking salts uh, on a monthly basis uh, made with beautiful regenerative and biodynamic hemp from a handful of Colorado farms that we collaborate with. Also. We've just launched a brand new Patreon page for the podcast series. You can go to why on earth community on the Patreon platform and sign up there. And we've got a host of additional offerings and goodies for you there, depending on your giving level. want to give a huge shout out to Chelsea green publishing a big partner. We'll be working with several of their authors again this year uh, for other podcast episodes. And of course also our, a uh, good friend and colleague, Nathan Stuck at Profitable Purpose Consulting, helping companies assess, attain, and maintain their bee certification through the B lab uh, global community. And finally, a huge thank you to Earth Coast Productions for all of their technical support with the work that we're doing, um, including keep an eye out for our forthcoming Simple Gardening Wisdom video course that we're launching in partnership with Chelsea Green Publishing, and uh, Patagonia. Um, so a huge thanks to everybody that makes this, this series possible. And, and John, I'm just picking back up on this thread. What, what you said about being able to hold both the negative and positive at once made me think about sort of this cognitive dissonance that can emerge on the one hand. And on the other hand, somehow, as we're growing and learning from each other and with each other, there's a sense that the capacity can expand and we can uh, keep our eyes open on the many myriad interconnected challenges that we're facing uh, while also uh, maintaining a positive, optimistic and action-oriented approach to doing what we can in the face of these many challenges. And I thought I I would ask you, along those lines, to give us your quick off the cuff sort of assessment prognosis, we're looking at things like climate change, uh, incredible divisiveness domestically here in the United States, uh, geopolitical instability, terrorism, uh, potential for runaway technology, especially with artificial intelligence uh, coupled with quantum computing what's your take what you know where where are we how how do we how do we think about uh these interconnected challenges that we're facing and of course that's not an exhaustive list
1: yeah I think that um um I think that we have some really um big hard um and, uh, and perhaps existential challenges and so um, we should um we should be wide-eyed about that, and um, I, I think one of the um, one of the most constructive things we can do for ourselves, uh, for our children, for our grandchildren, is uh, really learn and teach critical thinking skills um, uh, to be able to differentiate between a fact and an opinion, um, and I think it. I was um, having this conversation with my uh, son-in-law. I mean, it's, you know, on the one hand, he's, he asked me uh, what were some of the things that I would I would want to see uh, for my uh, granddaughter, my grandson, who are one-year-old, um, you know, that the don't exist in the universe today. And, and I said things like I really wish that, uh, they, uh, you understood, um, and and were grounded in some primordial wisdom. But I also said I wish that they there was a curriculum <laughs> on critical thinking skills.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It's not just learning the technology, which he offered in, and, and and to be able to be well versed in the different technological facets, but it's critical thinking skills. Aaron, in a separate piece with you, I. have you asked me to put together some thoughts on an essay um, on society, and I uh, recently and I did that. And I would remind you and and introduce your listeners to the uh, the notion of the uh, of general purpose technologies, the, the great general purpose technologies, which are all technologies. Each any in, any in, in individual one of them is transformational for. Uh, for humankind, and uh, there's there was a series of there's a couple of economists who identified 24 of these general purpose technologies, and of them, uh, fully and eight of them have occurred in the last roughly 100 years. So eight in 100 years, 16 in 20,000 years. Uh, put differently, our ability to absorb that is really challenged. Mm-hmm. And so it's no wonder people are challenged. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that, again, I think we've got to be um, wide-eyed um, and thoughtful uh, about some of the big um, um, uh, challenges that we face, whether that be to democracy or climate change. Um, and at the same time, we need to continue to do what we can do in places that we can do it uh, to get that cumulative body of work uh, to push uh, things forward in a rational, uh, thoughtful, mindful, uh, mindful from a, both a mindfulness standpoint and a mindful from a the standpoint of of good science, good fact, good policy uh, to bring things forward.
0: Yeah, yeah, beautifully said one of the other major themes in your book uh campaigns uh the book's called the renaissance campaigns right and you say basically that everything's a campaign and i have a sense both my friends and our friends in the policy and and and, uh, who are very engaged in democratic process accustomed to campaigns in that sense and also our friends in digital marketing uh, talk about campaigns all day long. Um, But for a lot of the rest of us, this may not be a term we would think of immediately when thinking about how we go about structuring our work and our lives and our lifestyles. And and you've sort of unpacked the potential of what campaign can mean for us across all of these different functions. I, I was hoping you could unpack that a bit further for our audience here today
1: i'll do it quickly uh, or as quickly as
0: i'm capable
1: and i apologize to your listeners so um when i first started writing the book i thought about writing a slightly different book and calling it life is a campaign
2: Uh,
1: and it's actually a series of millions of campaigns that we run every day and you write about the digital campaign and political campaigns but think about it you know people talk about fundraising campaigns and people talk about military campaigns and and you got the it campaign you got the public awareness campaign and you got the rate it just goes on and on the campaigns are everywhere we just don't think about them but they all have the same common architecture and and it really is um the architecture that i was um um Really interested in the process, and I've I've run a lot of those different kinds of campaigns. I started my career running political campaigns, I've run. I mean, I've run each each one of those campaigns, one level or another. Um, But they they all have they all have the same architecture. You have to you have to start with a goal and an objective. Um, You have to know what you want. Um, You have to. you have to have context, and this is. People talk about goals, they talk about strategies, they talk about tactics, they talk about execution. So, that, and all of those are important components of the campaign, and you should. Everybody should, you know, continue to talk about goals and and strategies and and tactics and execution. But what people don't talk about are a few different things. One, they don't talk about context. Mm-hmm you can't run a campaign unless you understand the context. (laughs) You know, that doesn't mean you can't create some change when forces of change are against you. But, uh, uh, you know, here's a nice controversial one. You know, think about gun control, right? You know, the big, you know, the vast majority of, of uh, americans want gun control and uh, you know one level or another and and but the context is the political environment is such that they're not going to get that right now uh and they have a it. so what biden did was um uh, he offered up a compromised position and got a compromised gun control package it, they don't back to campaigns people don't talk about mapping you need to map the process You need to map the individuals. You need to map the the legal components of the process. Uh, The bureaucratic, you need to know where your antibodies are uh, so that you can navigate all that. It's separate from context, related and yet separate from context. Then after you've done that, then you can start to build your strategies because it's probably not going to be a strategy. It's going to be strategies. That you know you're going to employ, uh, and then each one of those strategies has a series of tactics uh, that you employ with those strategies. And I, I think I use the example, um, you know, when you decide that you're uh, going to go to the grocery store, you're running a campaign. You are uh, you, you identified. You know you need food. <laughs> You, you, you set the contacts, uh, it's daytime here and and it's cold. So, you know, I've, I've got to, you know, bundle up. You, you, know, you map the process. Well, that road's closed. So I'm going to go this way and that way to get over there. You you, you have your strategy of, of walking in the, when you walk in, you're going to go to the right in the produce or you're going to jump to the left and go through the, you know, the, over by the uh, the dairy and you're going to, you know, and, and then your tactics are you're going to grab the cart, you're not going to grab the cart. It's all a campaign. Everything is a campaign. Now, it doesn't mean that, I mean, you know, my our friends at Lucille would tell you there's, there's a bunch more to life than a campaign. Um, but so much of what we do when we're trying to accomplish things on the do side of life versus the be side of life, the do side of life are a series of thousands millions of campaigns we run in our lives every day we just don't call them that and my uh my my thesis was that if you people understood it it would make it more efficient for them so they could just go like that and again that would improve their lives
0: mm. yeah beautiful and and so salient and uh potent i highly recommend folks that you uh, get a copy of the renaissance campaign will include the Amazon link to make that easy for you, where John uh, unpacks and talks about uh, all of this in even more detail, uh, the mixed table and the campaign frameworks. Want to be sure to mention, you can also connect with John through both LinkedIn and Facebook, LinkedIn, John Rogers 360, and Facebook, john.rogers.1694. And uh, of course, we'll include those uh, links in the show notes for you as well. And uh, John, um, before we sign off from our main podcast uh, discussion here today, and thank you so much for uh, taking the time to visit with me and be My able- pleasure. I really enjoyed it, Aaron. Thank you so much. Um, and of course, we're gonna, uh, in, a, in a few minutes, uh, do our shorter behind the scenes segment, which is available to our ambassadors and i just want to remind folks if you're not yet a fully activated ambassador and you'd like to be just go to the whyonearth.org website and uh, uh, click on the become an ambassador uh, page and, and you'll get that journey started for yourself we've got a lot of additional resources there um, for our ambassadors and uh, yeah before before wrapping up and, and um, signing off john i just wanted to invite you uh to to share and say anything uh you'd like to our audience in particular our our ambassadors and many others who tune into the why on earth community podcast who are one way or another and often many ways uh also working to make improvements in our world in our lives in our communities and and globally Uh, I wanted to invite you the floor is wide open if uh you'd like to share any final thoughts with us
1: yeah thank you um, uh, and thank you to them thank you to all of you who are listening thank you to all of you who are trying to make an impact trying to make a difference um, keep your heads up uh, remember that um, remember there is good um, there, there we, are, uh, we, we are there's much beauty and much to be thankful for and um, and we humans have solved and advanced many many things. You know, there's there's often a um, a lot of language around the good old days, <laughs> and um, and I'd I'd say a couple things like everything. It's, it's about balance. There were and are great lessons that we can learn from our elders. Um, and we want to look for those. That doesn't mean that our elders were always right. Sometimes they were just plain all wrong. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they were deeply mistaken. Um so it's it's having that open heart, that open mind uh, along with critical thinking skills and 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 the determination uh, versus tenacity, the determination uh, to move forward, that um, that will set you apart. And so thank you for thank you to you, Aaron, for all that you do. And thank you for your listeners for uh, getting up with the proverbial uh, you know, batter's box and trying to hit the ball. Because uh, we all know that if you don't take the swing, uh, you're never going to hit the ball.
0: Mm. So true. So beautiful. The wisdom's uh, absolutely perfect. Thank you, John. It's It's been a real pleasure having you on the podcast. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you.
2: The Why on Earth Community Stewardship and Sustainability podcast series is hosted by Aaron William Perry, author, thought leader, and executive consultant. The podcast and video recordings are made possible by the generous support of people like you. To sign up as a daily, weekly, or monthly supporter, please visit whyonearth.org support. Support packages start at just $1 per month. The podcast series is also sponsored by several corporate and organization sponsors. You can get discounts on their products and services using the code YONEarth. all one word with a Y. These sponsors are listed on the whyonearth.org backslash support page. If you found this particular podcast episode especially insightful, informative, or inspiring, please pass it on and share it with a friend whom you think will also enjoy it. Thank you for tuning in, thank you for your support, and thank you for being a part of the Why on Earth community.